When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Bring, bring it bring it to the bring it Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable podcast. Uh, Kev DeVries is not here today. He's probably commiserating after the Spurs uh, defeat in the Carabao Cup final. But I will be hosting today. Jake Jackman, you get me on Twitter at Jake Jackman with two ends. And you get the show on Twitter at EPL Roundtable. Hi, guys. My name is Sam Carp. I'm a Crystal Palace fan. Uh, I contribute to the Eagles beak. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at Sam double underscore Carp. Thanks so much for joining me again, Sam. I feel like it's quite often it's just the two of us on a show. And, uh, <laughs> here we are again. Um, but yeah, we will try and make sense of the week's events. We'll start with the Super League, as that's obviously the um, the big thing to have happened this week. And th- there's been a lot of um, fallout from that. Obviously, the six English clubs did pull out of the competition after agreeing to go into it. I think it was all over within about 48 hours. And it did make the, quite the uh, experience on social media when they were all pulling out and people were resigning left, right and centre. did feel like um, supporters sort of got... Still have a little bit of power in the game, which is good to see because it, when it was announced, I did fear that it it would be railroaded into into happening, but it wasn't. Um, but I just wanted to start with potential punishments because I know these have been discussed. We we heard UEFA talk about banning players from competitions if they played in it. Obviously, that's not going to happen now, but there's still um, talk of the Premier League giving sanctions, whether that be fines or points deductions or whatever that might be. And even UEFA as well. Do you think that these clubs should be punished, or do you think that now they've pulled out of it, the embarrassment is sort of enough for them, and everybody can move on and maybe look into um, how the the voting rights and things like that go going forward? Because I think these top six clubs did have a lot of power, and maybe it's just a case of um, decreasing that and not actually any punitive or financial punishments. Yeah, it's interesting actually because you know you talk about. This this obviously was kind of a power move and what the and what the top six and what those twelve founding clubs were trying to do. Um and you know, most ironically, what the what they might end up doing is, you know, they might end up in a position where they actually have have less power than than they had sort of this time a week ago. Um so so yeah, before even before going on to punishments, I think it's I think it's also worth addressing just, you know, what a massive week it's been in I think I don't think it's too much of an, an overstatement to say in like in football history really like this I don't know it feels like a really massive moment for the game I think um, just in terms of you know, it, it was something that really sort of transcended the football world became an issue for the for government it was a social issue it was just you know it was a massive massive news story it wasn't just something that was back page news it was it was front page news it felt like you know everyone everywhere was covering it so much so that you know like Jose Mourinho sacking at Spurs on Monday barely got a mention anywhere. Um, Ed Woodward's resigning as Manchester United vice chairman, you know, like typically that would that would be a huge story, and it just kind of felt like a drop in the ocean, and then amongst everything else, um, 
And you know, I think what was so interesting about it is that we've been hearing about a Super League for so long and historically it's always been used by the big clubs as as leverage to get more of what they want from the competitions that they compete in now. So, you know, whether it be to get greater uh, greater get greater share of the revenue from the Premier League's TV rights, um, more autonomy in the Champions League, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, when there was actually a press release, uh, it really did feel like, oh, wow, this is this is actually happening. Um, but there was also kind of a sense of, is this actually it? Because it was such a, it was such a feeble announcement for something so seismic. It looked like it had been thrown together in five minutes. You know, the entire execution just seemed really amateur. Um, when you consider the fact that this was 12 of the wealthiest clubs, you know, 12 of the wealthiest owners in world football involved. Um, and I think what was kind of clear from the outset was that each of these clubs were in it for a different reason. So, you know, you have, if if that's the case, you know, from the outset, you have the members pulling in such different directions. It always, it always kind of felt like it was destined to fail. You know, you had teams like Real, Real Madrid, Barca, Inter, who kind of needed this because of just how much debt they're in, how bad their finances are. Um, you have teams like United who are doing this effectively to try and bring the American sports model to Europe. Um, and in doing so, kind of, you know, multiply the value of their clubs by eliminate, eliminating the threat of, of relegation, ultimately, or not being involved in the top European competition. And then you had those like City, Chelsea, Spurs, who, who probably thought that they had to come along for the ride or risk being left behind. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I thought just the whole dynamics of it was really, really interesting. But... In terms of punishment, I think it's a difficult one. As you as you mentioned, there's the Premier League talking about punishments. UEFA is talking about whether it could potentially ban these clubs from competition next year. I know that Seferin is actually, it sounds like he's going to look a little bit more leniently upon the Premier League clubs because they were kind of the first ones to back out. Um, but in terms of what the Premier League does, you know, the relationship between these six and the other 14 is already going to be quite strained, I imagine. Um, but... We also shouldn't ignore the fact that the Premier League does still need those six. You know, it needs them to drive interest in the competition. The league is going to—it's the league's going to be going to market with its TV rights at some point in the next 12 months. And you know, the big six are a huge reason for why those are the most valuable of of any football league in the world. Um, I know that some people have been calling for points deductions. Uh, I don't think that would do a lot. You know, say you would still win the league. You might have West Ham sneaking into the top four, but I'm not entirely sure that's the answer. Um, I think, I think what there is now though is, is like a, there's a window of opportunity where where the Premier League could try to level the playing field a little bit. Um, you know, the big six don't have this threat; they can't hold this threat of a Super League over over the other clubs anymore. At least, you know, not in the short to mid term, um, or at least not until they can go away and formulate it a little bit better. So, you know, this really does feel like kind of an opportunity for the Premier League to limit some of the power that they've conceded to the big six over the years. So. You know, if you remember when the Premier League last sold its TV rights, I think it also introduced a new formula for the distribution of international TV revenue so that so that rather than be shared equally among all 20 teams, it was allocated based on league position, ultimately meaning that it was the big six that benefit the most. So, you know, one punishment, I think, would be to change that back. Um, there have also been reports that Richard Masters, the Premier League chief executive, is considering removing big six executives from key subcommittees, which I think would also be a good step, at least temporarily. Um, but I think also if you're the Premier League, you've got to get out in front of it now. You know, the league has seen that these clubs uh, are serious about a Super League potentially in the future. So I think they've got to they've got to introduce some sort of legislation, some sort of rules, some sort of deterrent that, you know, ultimately prevents them from 
trying to do it again. Yeah, it's going to be a difficult one. I definitely agree with you that the Premier League needs the big six so we can't just go around and deduct points from them and make it impossible for them to come back um, and and still play a, a significant part in all the committees and the meetings and things like that. I think that would be a, a bad step if we if we alienate them further. It, it would it would only really make them more likely to go off and and um, try and you know put put a super league together in a, in a different form. So I think that they need to work clever. I think an idea I quite like is is some quite big fines um, that can then be distributed down the football pyramid. Or it doesn't even have to be fines. I think they could work with the top six clubs to find a sort of a, a financial arrangement where they could pay. Um, some money to the lower league clubs because then it, it it will sort of come out good PR for them, good PR for the Premier League, everybody wins, they get punished by losing some money and um, yeah, that, something like that would maybe be a good punishment and, and one that doesn't alienate the clubs too much and, and doesn't really um, do anything sporting wise um, because I don't think that, that sporting punishment should, should really come into it at the moment because they didn't really do anything, they just showed intent to do it, um, which is bad enough but it's not like it, it got that far so um yeah i think something like that would be good uh, and i definitely agree that they should look into some sort of legislation that uh, would prevent clubs from doing this again and if, even if they did sign up for it in future maybe that should be an automatic um ban from the competition and uh, that that would be a, a huge deterrent to, to any future plans but i think it's it's strange i think because the top six already have such a a huge financial advantage over the rest of the clubs anyway. I don't know what they've already, especially the English clubs, they've got such a good thing going for them in the Premier League. I don't know why they try to force something else, but um, yeah, it really has blown up in their faces and um, they should get some sort of punishment, definitely. Um, but I think, think the relationships in Premier League meetings are going to be quite strained. I, I think it, there was a distrust already there, but it's probably going to, only going to be enhanced further after this. Um, I think that the five substitutions rule was one that, that annoyed the top six clubs that that didn't get forced through. Um, with, I think the majority of other clubs voted against it. So, um, yeah, they diff- it does seem to be like that we're going to see more attempts like this in the future, whether that be more reforms like Project Big Picture or, or Super League. It's not the end of it. But, um, yeah, I think that there will probably be too much embarrassment to try and force anything else in the distant in the near future anyway. So that's, that's positive for the Premier League. Um, just wanted to to know your thoughts on the way that the fans reacted and the media as a whole, I guess, because the, the fans' protests at Chelsea and then again at Arsenal. Uh, I think we saw some at Tottenham and Liverpool as well. There they, they was uh, not as much um, of a protest. And obviously Manchester United fans getting into the training ground. We're seeing quite a lot of um, direct action from football fans at the moment. And it's, it's not something that's... That, that's really been that effective in recent seasons. I know Newcastle have tried protests against the owner. They've not really worked out great. I know other clubs have too. Do you think that this is sort of like the start of the, the fans putting direct pressure on the clubs and maybe this is a positive for football moving forward um, and and it, it and we can still hold them accountable even if there isn't fan ownership in this country. I definitely think there's there's that fans can still have a huge part to play. Um, do, has that been encouraging for you and do you think that that is a sign of of things um, to come. Um, yeah, I mean, just before I address that question, I thought I just wanted to pick on up on something that you said before about, um, you know, why the Premier League clubs did this when they already have quite a lot of power anyway. Um, and also, it's interesting because you know the 
the UEFA Champions League format changes that got pushed through this week, a lot of a lot of those are basically what those clubs would want that include a lot of what those clubs wanted anyway. So it does make this whole power grab look even more bizarre, especially from a Premier League perspective, because as you say, um, or as we kind of alluded to already, the, the Premier League is the most lucrative league in the world. They've got the most valuable domestic TV rights, they've got the most valuable overseas TV rights. And so it's no wonder, you know, that the clubs in Italy were their finances aren't anywhere near as good. The teams in Spain want a slice of that pie as well. So you really do have to kind of question the um, the logic of the Premier League teams and kind of going for this in the first instance. It just seems, yeah, it doesn't seem like it was very well thought out on their behalf. Um, but yeah, going back to the, the question about the fans, um, I would be interested to know just how much of a difference those fan protests did make, to be honest. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure that even before the one at Stamford Bridge, which was the kind of the first opportunity for any of those any of the fans of those big clubs to sort of make their voices heard um i think even, even before that one took place there, there would have been a few clubs already setting the wheels in motion to pull out just because of how bad the reaction had been um because you know it wasn't just the fans that responded negatively to this it was it was literally everyone um you know it was the government it was the leagues it was uefa it was the clubs it was sponsors which would of course have been a massive concern to the owners um and I think you could see in some of the statements that were released as well that the fans certainly weren't the first consideration for a lot of these owners. There was a lack of contrition from the Glazers, for example. Um, I do find it hard to believe that these removed billionaires who never show their faces at the games really do care massively about the fans. Um, I think it was John Henry who even said in his weird staged apology that this could have never gone ahead without the supporters. Um, which begs the fairly obvious question of, of why they didn't engage them in the first instance and ask them if it was something that they actually wanted. Um, and again, I think the answer is because the only people that they were really thinking of throughout all of this was themselves. Um, your question though about, <coughs> excuse me, about whether we can make a positive impact. I mean, let's see, I think, I think a positive of these 12 clubs humiliating themselves effectively is that it's exposed a lot of the inequality that, that does exist in football at the moment. Um, you know, as, I, as I said before, let's not pretend that the Champions League as it is today and as it is going to be from 2024 isn't isn't a sort of closed shop as it is. Um, you know, you get the same teams qualifying for it every year. Um, you have teams finishing fourth in the Premier League getting in while champions from other European countries have to go through qualifier after qualifier to reach the group stages. Um, and from 2024, you're going to have these so-called legacy positions um, in case one of the top sides has a bad season. So... You know, let's not pretend that the existing structures aren't set up to protect the interests of the big clubs as they are. Um, so if fans are going to have a positive impact, let's let's not stop at this. You know, let's demand for UEFA to revisit the changes that they've made to the Champions League. Let's look at the concentration of money that is at the top of the game that's resulted in football becoming, you know, an extremely expensive hobby for a lot of people. Um, you know, ticket prices are outrageous these days, as we know. It's something that's just kind of been allowed to happen. Um, so... Yeah, there's obviously going to be limits to the impact that fans can have. Not everything is going to change on the back of this, but I think it is hopefully going to create some important conversations about how the game is run. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, the government in this country is starting that with a with a review into how football was run. Um, I think former sports minister Tracy Crouch is leading that process, which is going to look at creating a new regulator, changing the fit and proper person test for owners. And kind of examine and kind of examine how to give fans a greater say and how their clubs are run. So yeah, let's also hope some something positive comes of that too.
Yeah, definitely. I think it's good that we are getting these uh, government reviews into what's happening. I know there's been rumoured for a long time, but this definitely has been the lightning rod under under the beginning. Um, I don't know if anything substantial will come out of it, but it, it is a, a positive thing. Um, and, and we'll see how, where that goes. Um, I definitely agree on the Champions League performance as well. I think they need to be looked at and uh, been encouraging that some people in the game start to speak out about those as well. I think Ilkay Gundogan came from that quite a um, scathing tweet about the situation. So if more players get on board and and um, they do go back to the the negotiating table of UEFA um, after seeing the the fallout of of the Super League, maybe they'll they'll revisit their reforms and and try and make it less about the elite clubs getting what they want. Um, so I think that's that's that. Something to keep an eye on, but I doubt that that's where we're going. As you said, the we the Super League not coming into existence is a, is a positive, but let's not pretend that everything's great at the moment. Um, and and there's there's room for improvements across the board, really. Um, and yes, that hopefully the Premier League will take the lead on that, and with the with the uh, international TV rights and making sure that the distribution is more fair. But if not, um, yeah, we, we're we're still heading down the wrong road. Um, in terms of uh, elitism and football and um, the, how unlevel the playing field is, but uh, it does feel like this last week was a was a victory in in keeping football as competitive as it can be. So we've got to take our small victories as they come, and hopefully there'll be more more in the future months and years. But um, move, moving back onto what has been happening on the pitch so far. Uh, we've spoken a lot about the relegation fight recently on this podcast. That seems to be dwindling away into nothing um, with, with the three teams in the bottom three facing a, a very, very difficult battle to stay off now. Um, and it looks unlikely that any of them will be able to uh, get out of it. Obviously, Sheffield United are already gone, but West Brom and Fulham are still still got a slither of a hope. But Burnley winning today, Newcastle um, getting eight points from the last four matches means it's, it's probably unlikely that either of them will will get out of it. So with that looking like it's finished, the tight race obviously finished, Manchester United win today, sort of killed any chance of a late City slip-up opening the door to them. Um, it seems like the battle for the top four is the one that everybody's talking about, but Liverpool dro- dropping points again this weekend. Um, West Ham losing their last two matches. Tottenham struggling to to put a run together. It does does feel like even that might might be decided in the coming weeks. Chelsea look like they're a relentless machine at the moment. They had the one slip up against West Brom, but aside from that, they've been very, very good. Um, Leicester have got a good run of fixtures coming up, uh, and they they seem to be back on their stride now uh, and putting any memories of last season behind them. Do you think that we're going to eventually end up in the last couple of weeks with, with little to little to play for in the Premier League, and everything will be decided, or do you think that that top four race is still the the one that we might see um, go on to the final day? Um, yeah, it's funny looking back because I think it was around December time that people were saying that we could have one of the most exciting title races in years with City, United and Liverpool involved. But from that point, City have kind of proved that they're far above everyone else. Um, and in terms of relegation, when Fulham started showing signs of life in the new year, there was a real sense that they could drag themselves out of it. Or for the very least, kind of take it to the last day for that game against against your lot, Newcastle. But they've just not been able to turn decent performances into points. And... You know, I think also for all the negativity that has been around Newcastle this season, it, it always was going to kind of be a question of how quickly they could get the likes of Almiron, St Maximan and Wilson back fit. So 
I don't think it's been any surprise to see them to see them picking up points in the last few weeks with those players being back. Um, in terms of the top four, I think it still is. I think there's still just enough intrigue there. You know, Leicester seem to have recovered from that little dip in form that they had, and you'd expect them to beat Palace tomorrow, which would move them seven points clear of fifth. Which, with um, five games to go, you would expect to be enough. Um, Chelsea also look really solid under Tuchel, as you say, but they've got a kind of tricky run in. They've still got to play City away, Arsenal, Leicester as well, which means one of them will be dropping points in that fixture. Um, Plus, they'll also have the Champions League semis and the FA Cup final in their minds, which could prove a bit of a distraction, I suppose. So, um, so yeah, I don't don't think Liverpool or West Ham will be giving up on it just yet. Um, Liverpool, weirdly, you kind of... You just sort of expect them to make their way into it, but the you know games like yesterday aren't going to help them at all. They're just missing opportunities at the moment. You know that yesterday in the game against Leeds, the games where they had the lead had had opportunities to be out in front by more. Um, it just feels like maybe it isn't going to happen going to happen for them this year. Um, and then West Ham, you know, they might be optimistic. I think I'm right in saying they don't have any of the top six left to play, so I wouldn't write them off just yet. But yeah, I think it would be quite a collapse if uh, if Leicester and Chelsea were to finish outside the top four now. Yes, yeah, it's not only just a fixture for West Ham, it is also that they've got a lot of players out injured. I know they, they hope to have Rice and Antonio back, um, but it's still, uh, still difficult. When a team like West Ham overachieve, once you get one or two, three injuries, it does really, really hamper you. You just don't have that quality and depth that the, the top six have. So we've definitely seen that West Ham in the last couple of weeks. That they are struggling um, with some of their key players out, um, but yeah, I think there's still a chance they will. I think Chelsea have still got Liverpool. I don't think they. I think they've got a couple of tough games. They've still got Manchester City left to play, so maybe they they're the ones that might um, that might drop out of it, especially if they start to focus on other cup competitions. Um, but yeah, I, I hope we get someone to play for on the last day, and I'm sure that I'm sure that one of the the, the the top six will continue to sort of slip up and maybe there will be a bit of intrigue. For Liverpool, it's strange because I think I think with Liverpool, they just look to be fatigued. Uh, it was against Leeds that Leeds in the last 10 minutes were were completely dominant and, and could, could have scored the winner. And again, we saw yesterday, um, they were all over us for most of the game, created all the, the better chances. And then for the last 10, 15 minutes, we really started to, to create a lot of chances. We obviously got the goal that got disallowed, and then we went again and scored. It felt like once you got that reprieve from VAR, a team that is going to finish in the top four should be able to see it out for another minute. And it was just so sloppy the way they defended. There was a lack of energy, and they weren't really closing closing players down. The marking was poor. It just really does seem like Liverpool have, have hit a a, men, a mental block um, this season. They need to have that summer to to refresh, get key players back, and just have a little bit of a rest. Um, so yeah, it definitely feels like that with Liverpool, and the fact that you haven't won either of the last two games does make me think that they're not going to to go and finish in the in the top four. Though they do have a good run in, um, so there's still hope there. But you'd have said that Leeds and Newcastle were two good fixtures, and they didn't win either. So it, it's difficult. Um, and Tottenham as well, they've got a chance, but um, yeah, it, it is um going to be tough for them to um to get into it. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Moving into the questions for our guests this, this week. Uh, it's obviously just you, Sam, so maybe you want to chuck some Newcastle questions to me. But um, just wanted to get your thoughts on Roy Hodgson. Do you think that he is going to go this summer? It's a really, really tricky one. Um, and it's a question which I've kind of asked myself a lot during this season. I think my answer to it has changed um, almost like week by week, to be honest. Um, just based on the kind of performances that we've been having, you know, so like after, for example, after the game, I think it was at home to Burnley, we lost 3-0. That felt like a real low point. And at that point, I think a lot of fans were calling for him to go. And then after that, we sort of put us we put a run of results together, which, you know, weren't sensational performances, but we just kind of, we got draws, we got a couple of wins, and all of a sudden we were kind of safe with two, three months of the season left to go. So it's hard to say that he's done a bad job this season, even though the football has at times been utterly, utterly painful to watch. I can't, I can't really describe to you how poor, I mean, to be honest, you're probably the one person who might be able to understand how bad it's been because I think the experiences of Palace and Newcastle fans this season in terms of the football that we have been watching have been quite similar. You know, it's very very one-dimensional, it's rigid, um, it's not very ambitious. So I think a lot of Palace fans, a lot of Palace fans have definitely made their mind up in the sense that they want him gone this summer, they're ready for a change, they don't think he's the man to oversee the kind of, the sort of, the overhaul of the squad, which is so desperately needed. Um, but then there's also those who are saying, you know, he's kept us safe quite comfortably each season that he's been in the job. Um, realistically, what else can Crystal Palace kind of expect? Um, and then you sort of look at some of the names that have been linked to replace him. You've got Eddie Howe, uh, Sean Dyche, Patrick Vieira, I think was linked this week. I think the Athletic reports on that. Um, you know, not an, not a hugely inspiring selection of names. Um, you know, I think each one would come with its own risks. I think probably the surest, the safest option out of all of those, and the one that I think Par- uh, Steve Parrish, the Palace chairman, would be most likely to go for it would be Sean Dyche, um, just because it would be sort of it would be evolution rather than revolution, if you know what I mean. In the sense that he'd come with perhaps similar ideas to what Hodgson has. He's not going to try and transform how we play overnight um but then that also begs the question of you know we'd have to pay Burnley quite a significant sum to prize him away prize him away I imagine and you know there's not I'm not sort of I'm not arrogant enough to think that Crystal Palace is a big step up for someone like Sean Dyche who has proven himself at Burnley and could probably have ambitions to manage a little bit higher um 
so yeah, uh, and you know, I think personally, if um, if I were to, if Hodgson were to go, I wouldn't be opposed to us looking at someone like Thomas Frank or Steve Cooper, depending on what happens with the championship playoffs. Um, but yeah, you know, this, I know it's kind of a, I'm sort of sitting on the fence here in terms of whether I think Hodgson will go. Um, and it's, to be honest, it's because I don't think anyone, no one really knows. I feel like, I feel like Parrish is probably in a similar position to the fans in that it's just kind of, you know, it, it must change week by week at the moment because one week it'll look like the players aren't playing for him, the next week it'll look like they are. Um, so I think it just kind of comes back to that question of whether, you know, whether he is the right man to oversee what the sort of overhaul that the, that the squad is about to undergo. Um, whether Parrish thinks that, you know, given given the circumstances at the moment, given that we are still sort of in the midst of a pandemic, um, whether it is just kind of the easier option to have him for another year um, and then sort of push the decision back until next summer. Um, that might also be something that he's considering. But yeah, I'd to be honest, I'd, yeah, it's it's hard to say whether he will go this summer. I think if I had to if I had to sort of bet on it, I'd say I'm now thinking that he won't. I think that he will still be. Uh, I think he will still be Palace's manager at the start of next season. It is a difficult one um, with Hodgson. I think that if it wasn't a pandemic, I think that he, he would it would probably be the right time. But um, I also think with Paris is probably scarred by the De Boer experience. Um, and the fact you brought him in and he he, he struggled. Aside from him, it's it's been very, um, I guess, safe appointments. You have Pulis, Warnock, uh, Pardew, uh, and now obviously Hodgson. They all they're all very safe appointments. Do you think that that, that experience has scarred him? And do you think that that would prevent him from going for a, a foreign manager again? Or do you think that maybe time has sort of healed that scar and it was so long ago that maybe maybe he would be open to it? No, I think you're right in saying that. I think um, the De Boer appointment was the first time that Parrish had really taken a big risk and it didn't come off at all. Um, you know, I talk about evolution rather than revolution. That was kind of the opposite of that. De Boer tried to revolutionise the way we play really quickly and it just didn't work. You know, four games in charge it was he had. We didn't score a single goal, lost all four of those games and Parrish realised very quickly that in fairness, realised very quickly that he had made a big mistake and changed it. And I don't think you can really have, you know, two opposite ends of the scale in terms of Hodgson and De Boer in terms of in terms of appointments. So, um, yeah, that's as I say, that's why when I when I look at the list of of managers that have been linked with us, you know, you talk about Vieira, um, which um, yeah, you talk about Vieira, even those names that I mentioned at the end, Thomas Frank or Steve Cooper, um, both of those would be a risk as well. So. I, I just don't think that I think Parrish has learnt from that De Boer experience that he's not gonna he's not gonna gamble. You know, even I think in the Premier League we see a lot of appointments where clubs try to be clever with it in a way and think it's gonna take them to the next level. And it's very, very rare what I think those sort of appointments do come off. Um, you know, I think Bryson with Brick Graham Potter is a reasonable example of where there has been some Success. I know that obviously they're still at the 17th at the moment, but he has been able to implement a good style of play there. And you do feel that if they were to sign a striker in the summer, then you know they'd potentially finish next season a lot more comfortably than they have been this. Um, look at Hassan Huto at Southampton, for example, who's come in. He's he's been really really good. He was a great appointment for them. But you know, 
not every club is able to stumble, stumble across a manager like that. It is always a risk to appoint someone without that kind of experience of the Premier League. I think it, it either goes it goes one of two ways. It either it's either a great success or it sort of fails quite spectacularly, like it did with De Boer. So, um, so yeah, to be honest, I would be very surprised if Parish did go for sort of an adventurous appointment, especially given, especially given that I think this appointment is pretty massive for us. Um, you know, I've already alluded to it in terms of the overhaul that we have with the squads. Um, you want this next appointment to be someone who knows, who has a plan for the team, basically, who has, who knows what sort of players they want in that squad, knows what style of play they want. Um, they want those players to be playing. Um, so yeah, I think it is. I think it's a really massive appointment, and I can't see Parish taking too many risks with it because of that. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting summer for Palace. I think for me, looking at what the Premier League is likely to be next season, the teams that are coming up, um, for me, Palace definitely seem to be one of the ones that even right now I'd probably call as potential for relegation purely just because of the squad. Um, Hodgson coming towards the end. It, it def- definitely does seem like a cross, cross crossroads that Parish has to get right. Otherwise, it could go, could go south very quickly. I think this season... You've got most of your points against the bottom five, so it, it, the margin for error is, is quite low um, for for Hodgson. And if they did decide to stick for him because he's a safe pair of hands, and it's a pandemic, you can't afford to get relegated. You know, he he, he he's kept you up this far, but he could very quickly not keep you up next season. And it, I think that the there's a much broader choice of a manager in the summer than there is mid season. So I think that. It definitely feels like the right time for Palace. I think that next season is going to be a struggle, whatever happens, really. Um, of course, it, it, it you should still have confidence in the the experience you've got and and being able to stay in the Premier League. But it's definitely going to be another battle against relegation, and and I think that it's going to be that with Hodgson or without him. So it's probably the right time to make the change. Um, so be interesting how that goes. Would you have any preference for who you'd like to see come in, or would you sort of agree with? With with Parish and maybe Daesh would be the best best appointment if you could get him. Yeah, um, I mean, first of all, I think you're right in that next season's going to be really tough. Whatever happens, um, you know, you mentioned already Norwich, Watford coming up. I think I think basically a lot of teams this season have been quite fortunate that Fulham, uh, West Brom, and Sheffield United have been as bad as they have been because yeah, you, know, you look below. You look sort of below the top ten. There are some really, really bad sides. Um, you know, Wolves have been Wolves have been really poor this year by their standards. Um, to say Palace haven't been very good. Newcastle, as um, as we've discussed in this podcast before, for large parts of the season have massively underwhelmed. Um, Brighton as well have been quite fortunate. On, well, fortunate in some ways, um, unfortunate in others. If you believe in expected goals. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of teams have been quite fortunate in that respect that there have been three who have been really poor. Whereas, as you say, next season you've got Watford and Norwich coming up already. Um, two teams that have what you would kind of call Premier League squad. Like, they've definitely got players of Premier League calibre. Um, and you'd expect would kind of be able to hit the ground running next year, given that they've they've got the experience of, of playing in the Premier League. Um, whereas, you know, some of the teams that came up this season didn't. Uh, and then it looks like you know Bournemouth could easily be the third, the third team to come up if they were to win the playoffs. So you know it's looking like it could be an even more competitive league next season. Um, so 
So yeah, that's what again, that's why it does make it so important that we get this appointment right. And so my, I think my preference, personally, I know that I've mentioned Thomas Frank and Steve Cooper as two that I'd like us to look at, but I'd probably, I think, I do think the safest appointment would be Deich if we could get him, um, for the reasons that I kind of stated before, and that I, I just think he'd come in. He'd, he knows, he he is someone who knows how he wants his teams to play. Um, he's got the experience of keeping with all due respect to Burnley, what I'd say is kind of a limited group of players in the Premier League by having them play in a defined style. Um, so, yeah, whereas if it was someone like Eddie Howe, for example, I think it would be more of a risk because he'd certainly have us, he'd certainly be trying to have us play in a different way. Um, he's, you know, he's also, he's also taken Bournemouth down um, as he did last season. Uh, so there's no sort of guarantee there, not that there is with Deich, but, you know, I just, I just feel like it would be less of a risk bring Daisha in. I think his experience is is something that would kind of work in his favour. Um, but again, like, like like I said before, I'm not kind of arrogant enough to think that Palace could just go and and poach Dice from Burnley because I think you know it would take a lot of money. But I think on the other side of that, you know, their their new ownership seems quite interesting in terms of how it was financed. Um, I don't know whether he'll. Um, I don't know. Maybe he might see it as a as a good time for a change as well. But uh, but yeah, we'll see. But I think um, I think yeah, Dice would probably be my my option. Yeah, I think that Dice would be a good call for Palace um, in their situation. It, the only doubt is is how he how he would be with transfers. But um, I don't know how how do Palace do transfers? Is that manager led or is it sort of recruitment um, recruitment team led? I don't know if you, do you have people who do, do that or is it. They've got um so Palace have a they've got Dougie Freeman who's the director I think they call I think he's the director of football they call him the sporting director um whichever one but basically he does a lot of the recruiting um which is I think a lot of people over a lot of Palace fans over the last couple of seasons if you know Hodgson's been given some players um and hasn't necessarily played them I think Max Meyer was probably the best example of that someone that we'd kind of recruited and then Hodgson just basically didn't think he was good enough and, and didn't play him. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's a situation where, I don't think it's a situation where the club kind of doesn't consult the manager on signings. I think, you know, Freeman obviously plays quite an important role in, in going out and scouting these players. But um, I don't think it's one of those where the decisions are made sort of above, above the manager. Um, I, think, I think he's kind of involved in that process as well. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting summer ahead for Palace. I think it should be for Newcastle too. Um, obviously got eight points from our last four games, which is good. Moved us clear of relegation. I think we probably only need one more win to, to stay up. And we do have Sheffield United at home to come. So that should that should be enough to see us through, especially if we've got our players back like we do. Um, but yeah, Steve Bruce has gone from gone from dead man walking to a potential manager of the month. But I still think that... that the majority of fans would want him out. I think I'd want him out still. Um, yeah, I think that it, it, he's proven that with, with him, we're always going to be in this relegation battle. Whereas I think the players we have and uh, we and the experience we have in the Premier League, I think that we should now be more than that. Um, I think we had a run of like two wins in 20 matches, which is just awful. You know, it, 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 Sort of highlights what you said about the league this season that it, it, we've been lucky there have been three really bad teams otherwise we'd have been in the relegation zone and really struggling um so yeah we've moved clear of that um but i still think it's time for, for bruce to leave at the end of the season and uh hopefully get a 
a more forward thinking manager in somebody that can can make the most of what we have because the thing with Bruce is he doesn't really have a style we move formation to formation and and we rely on individuals sort of to to pull, pull results out and it, it's worked to an extent I think we've always if we if we've got say Max Van and Wilson on the pitch next season um in enough games we'd probably stay up even with Bruce but I think that we'd we need more than that and uh yeah that, that's the way I want you guys to go. I didn't know if you had any questions aside from Bruce. That was the yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, just because uh, obviously there was a point, it wasn't that long ago, I suppose, maybe three weeks, a month ago, when a lot of people were almost talking about it as a formality that, you know, Fulham were sort of on an upward trajectory. Um, Newcastle were going in the opposite direction. Um, sort of the, the narrative was kind of that they were going to swap places. Um, have you been like? Have you been surprised at all that Bruce has been able to turn it round, um, and that you have kind of gone on this run that you have? Um, because I think a lot of people were expecting it to kind of go down to that last game. Um, so yeah, just interested to know whether you're whether you're surprised at all in terms of how he's been able to turn around your form, and that you that you are now. You know, you you do look safe with with about five games to go. Yeah, I'm definitely surprised. Um, I think watching the Brighton game, I think it was before the international break, it's one of the worst performances I've seen from a Premier League team this season. And it definitely, I think if it was any other club, they would have made the managerial change. But I don't know why Newcastle didn't, but it's definitely proven to be correct. I think at the time, I think the 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 articles that were sort of well thought seemed to suggest that the, the club thought once we got the players back from injury, we'd pick up enough points. And they've been proved correct. So I definitely think that if, if say, Maximan and Wilson didn't get injured when they did, we probably wouldn't, have ever been in the conversation as much as we were. I think we had a good run of games with we had West Brom, Villa, Wolves, and and Brighton where we picked up I think it was three points. So it wasn't that wasn't good enough. But I think with those, if we had our our players fit for those matches, we probably would have picked up I don't know seven or eight points out of that, and then we would really push the safety safety as we have done since they've come back. So I mean we saw it in the game. Um, against Burnley after the international break for 60 minutes we were terrible we brought on St Maxwell and Wilson scored two goals and got the win so definitely seems like we're reliant on those two players um, but I guess it, it, I guess it's similar to Palace in a way I don't think it's as, as obvious as it was a, a couple of years ago but when Zaha plays you definitely win more matches it, it's a similar sort of thing to, to St Maxwell more so than Wilson I think but St Maxwell since he was signed he must have missed about half half the matches with injury. So when he's fit, I think our, our, the, our points per game with him is so much higher. And, and I guess it's having that player that can commit players, create space, sort of create havoc. Because Newcastle and Palace are both, by definition, quite defensive teams. So if you don't have that attack and threat, you become quite easy to play against. Um, whether I think so, there's definitely some parallels between Palace and Newcastle. And I think that having those players back has helped Bruce. I don't think he's really been, he's done anything out of the ordinary. Um, he did bring back uh, Richie into the team. He brought in um, Paul Dummett and he brought in um, Jacob Murphy. He sort of brought in a lot more experience into the team, Federico Fernandez as well. Um, and that seems to have worked quite well um, for him bringing those players in. So maybe we needed that little bit of experience in the team um, that we were lacking before. Um, there's definitely been a difference in the last few matches. Um, but Bruce definitely deserves credit. And, and the way the players celebrated of him uh, yesterday sort of does show that they 
still are behind him, which for a long time it was, there, was, there was talk about a dressing room mole, there's talking about um, players um, not wanting to play for Bruce. But it definitely seems like that, that there's been a change in dynamic, whether that's been something that's happened within the club. And I don't know, maybe a, a team meeting to discuss what had been going on. Um, maybe there have been some clear the air talks. But um, yeah, I think I, I thought we, would get, we were going back down. And um, the fact we've we've pulled out of it is a surprise to me. I think the last time I was on the podcast was before the Burnley game, and I said that um, this was our opportunity to pull away from it, and we needed to win those two games against Burnley and West Ham, and we did. So, um, yeah, I think that that's been really pleasing, and um, hopefully now, fingers crossed, we've got another season of Premier League football, which we should have, and it. <laughs> In the summer, I think the decision needs to be made on Bruce, sadly. I think that we need to have that change purely because I just don't think... I think when fans come back into the grounds, it'll be quite... The atmosphere won't be great for him. But um, he deserves credit for what he's done. And uh, I now I'm, I hope he sees the season out and gets a few more good results. But I think it's, the time has come to, to change um, because I think if we kept with him for another season, we'd be back in this position next year. Whereas I think if we were proactive and bring in a, I guess a more forward thinking manager, somebody that's a little bit more, um, it's got a little bit more personality to him that, that you can buy into and, and the fans can get on board. Then maybe with the team we have, some of the players we have, if we get the fan base on board as well and create a positive atmosphere in stadiums, I think that we would really benefit from that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. It's slightly different to Palace. Um, yeah, I, I think there's probably a very good chance we probably see Hodge and Abruz still in charge next season, to be honest. Yeah, I, think, a... I, I think that both it's time for both clubs to make the change. Yeah, it's an interesting one with Bruce, isn't it? Because as much as the fans want it, you know, when has Mike Ashley ever really done what the fans want? Um, and you know, if, if should Newcastle stay up this season, you'll kind of see it as vindication of of keeping Bruce in charge. Um, I've always thought it was a difficult one with him because I think Bruce is kind of, he is quite, from the outside, I find him a reasonably likable character. Um, you know, he seems like quite a nice bloke who just wants to do well, uh, but he just kind of has his limitations. Um, you know, I'd say it's the same with, he's sort of part of this group of English managers, isn't he, where um, you kind of bring them in to do a certain job, but there's always going to be a ceiling with them. So, I agree with you in the sense that you know Newcastle should be aiming for something higher than that. They deserve to have a manager who's kind of who does think who is a little bit more forward thinking, who does have a little bit more ambition and um, does at least implement some sort of discernible style of play. Um, so yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what they do with that. But um, I know I know you mentioned you obviously mentioned some Maximan and Wilson coming back, and obviously Almiron's been an important player as well. Those are kind of the three that I'd from the outside anyway, it's, you can always tell there's a difference when those three are involved and those three are kind of, they always look like your most attack, your, your biggest threats from an attacking perspective. Um, so Maxman, especially, as you say, he does have the kind of Zaha vibe in the sense that he can draw two or three players to him and that creates space for everyone else. It's just, yeah, they're, they're quite similar in that sense and their, their ball carrying ability just kind of takes a lot of pressure off of everyone else. But um and obviously, one player who's chipped in with a couple of really important goals in the last two weeks is Joe Willock. Um, just wondering, you know, what what you've made of him since he's coming on loan, and you know, if you know, would you would you be keen for the club to try and make that permanent in the summer if that option was available? You know, I don't, I don't know how 
doesn't seem like he's that integral to Arsenal's plans. So, um, yeah, just interested to know what you've made of him and, and whether he's someone you'd like Newcastle to try and keep. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think I probably said that after this first game in Southampton. I think he scored in his debut, but he's just, he's completely different to any other midfielder we have. He's got a lot of energy, gets from box to box. He can win the ball back. He also makes a lot of those late runs into the penalty box, which is why he's getting these goals. Um, and he, de- he does have a really good sort of football intelligence to him. He's, he's always in the right position. He's always making the right movements. And considering he's, he's only 21, um, yeah, I'm really impressed with how good he is. Like when we got him from Arsenal, I think there was a lot of talk about, you know, Premier League clubs going after Maitland-Niles. And it did seem like we were getting the worst of the two Arsenal loanies that were going out. But watching Willock play, I definitely think that he's got more about him than Maitland-Niles in, in, in the central uh, midfield where I think he's got so much energy um, and he's got he, he's got a knack for goal scoring. And I don't think that's... that's it's lucky that he's getting these goals. Obviously, he's not going to score every time he comes on the pitch, but he's getting in the right positions. And I think he's always going to carry that threat. And I think it's important for teams, especially in the bottom half of the Premier League, to have a player that can that can get into the box late and add to your attacking attacking play. Uh, I think you know Palace have it of Eze to some extent. Um, so yeah, I think it's important to have that extra threat. Um, and and Willock's definitely that. I'd love to see the club sign him whether that be on another loan or permanently. I think that maybe a lot of it will depend on how Arsenal do in the Europa League. If they win the Europa League, maybe they won't be forced to sell him. Um, but I think if they don't and they're not in the Champions League, there's definitely going to be an opportunity for Newcastle to sign him. And I, I'd hope that the the relationships he's built in the squad, um, the way he's taken to life at Newcastle, the good form he's showing, will probably mean that even if other clubs did want him, um, he'd probably favour the move to continue what he's already started. So I think that we've def- we're in a strong position. And the way Bruce is talking, he's talking quite confidently about keeping him. So I think there's, there must have been talks behind the scenes to, to suggest that it's going in that direction. So I think that would be really positive. And I think if we did sign him permanently and and found a role for him in the team, I think you'd add him to, to say, Maximilian Wilson and Almiron as, you know, those, those three players are obviously important. But I definitely think Willick can be the fourth in that. Uh, so yeah, I'd like to see him stay. But yeah, that takes us nicely on to our next topic, which is player watch. And this week we're going to uh, talk about a player at our club that we think we might um, see leave in the summer um, and, and one that you'd rather your club to keep. So there's obviously players in mind that at Newcastle Palace that I, that I was thinking of when I thought of this question. Yeah, Sam, just basically what, what player at Palace do you think you're in danger of losing this summer? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that might as well name it, Wilfred Zaha. Yeah, <laughs> I think the answer to this question has probably been the same for us for like the last four or five years, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it would, it would be Zaha again, who I think has two years left on his, on his contract after after this summer. So you're kind of getting to a point now with him turning 29 in November. It's probably sort of the last chance for the club to cash in on him if that is what they want to do. Um and it's arguably the last chance for him to get that move to a team playing in Europe that he's made pretty clear in the past that he that he wants. Um, the problem I see is just kind of similar to what's prevented him from moving up until now. Um, I know that in the past, Palace have put a price, there's been like a mooted price tag of 70, 80 million, whatever, which is you know completely unrealistic now. I think they'd likely be looking at Half of that um, would probably be a good deal for the club, but 
I think it's still a question of who is going to pay that, um, especially after the 12 months we've had and the impact of, of COVID on club finances. You know, is, is any club going to be prepared to spend 30, 40 million on, on someone who's turning 29 later this year? Um, so, you know, part of me does worry that, uh, well, not worry because obviously I love seeing him play for Palace, but a part of me has always kind of wanted, wanted to see him go to that next level and just kind of see what he would be like playing for a Champions League club, playing for a team that has more of the ball than Palace do, that gives him more opportunities to get on the ball and take on defenders than he does have with us. Um, so, so yeah, while he is the one that I'd be most worried about us selling this summer, I'm still not convinced the stars will align for it to happen. Um, yeah, I just, I still just don't see who's going to pay for him. And there's always like, there's always this feeling with Zaha that maybe he isn't rated as highly outside of, well, he isn't rated as highly as by other clubs as he is rated by Palace, um, which isn't, which isn't kind of like uh, sort of negative about him. It's just, it's just proof of how important he is to Palace, just how integral he is to us staying in the league every single season. Um, I just don't know if he'd have that same impact at another club. So, you know, um, if that is the case and he still doesn't move on this summer, then I think you might even get a situation where the club could initiate a conversation about potentially extending his contract, but but we'll see. Um, and, you know, another reason that I say him being the one that I'm most worried about is because I can't imagine there's anyone else in our squad that a club would really want to sign. Um, Eze, I guess, is probably the one that you'd think eventually will start to be linked with other teams and you know might even represent more of an attractive investment for clubs than than Zaha at this point. But I think I think it'll probably be another season before we before we see him being linked with a move away. Yeah, I think I think for Newcastle it's probably take Maximan. He's the one that people are worried about losing, whether that be this summer or in future summers. But I think like Zaha, it's it's probably not gonna align for him this summer. I think that he's had too many injuries to really um, warrant that big price um, that Newcastle definitely want. I think he signed a six-year contract earlier this season, so it'd be quite a big fee. Uh, I know Mike Cashier is a, probably a more willing seller than Steve Parrish is, so I, I think St. Maximal at some point will move on, but I think he probably needs another year at Newcastle um, probably to prove that he can he can stay fit over um, an entire season and sort of probably register more goals and assists than he has this year and last year. I think it would it would take a big, it would be a big risk for a club to to take the gamble on him for the price that Newcastle would want. Um, and and it's probably if pre-COVID, it might have been one that somebody took a took a gamble on. But I think after COVID, transfers are definitely going to be on a a need basis rather than a want basis. And Saint Maximan definitely falls under a want transfer for those currently in the top four, uh, top six. Uh, and the other top clubs in Europe. So I don't think it's going to be one that's going to come on their radar. And, and a bit like on Zaha as well, I definitely agree that he's he's probably falls into the same bracket. And if COVID hadn't have happened, I think maybe this summer we would have, there would have been a market for him, but I just don't think it's going to be there now. So all summer, Newcastle and Palace fans are going to read reports about it's like Maximan and, and Zaha, but I think they'll probably both end up staying where they are. Um, so yeah, it's good for our clubs, probably bad for them, but probably less, less disappointing for St. Maximan. I think he's 20, 23, 24 now. He's going to get his big move at some point. I'm, I'm certain of that, but I just don't think it's going to be this summer. Um, 
but just finally before we finish up we'll go on to match previews um bit of a weird one with Palace we guess we can preview both your upcoming games so we'll start with the uh the game tomorrow night against Leicester I think you spoke earlier when we talked about Leicester that you expected them to win it um <laughs> which which I uh, bodes well for this section yeah I think um yeah I think most people probably expect Leicester to win it to be honest um it's hard to expect much from us really um you know we're safe uh they've they're still playing They've still got something to play for with, you know, Champions League qualification. Um, they, you know, hopefully we'll be going into it fresh, having having had last week off. I think they've they've played at least two games since um, since our last one, so you know that that could potentially work in our favour. Um, but you know they'll be full of confidence after after the FA Cup semi final win and beating West Brom in, in the week. Um, it's kind of you know it's it's helped them get over that little blip they seem to be having, which you know might have been. Uh, resurrecting some memories of last season when they when they threw away that place in the top four, but kind of the signs are that they've learned from that and that they aren't going to do the same this season. Um, and they've probably pinpointed this as a game where you know they need to win to cement their place in that top four, especially with you know that match against Chelsea that I mentioned. And I think they've probably got maybe one or two other tougher fixtures than us coming up before the end of the season. So this will kind of be one that they've had earmarked for three points. Um, you know, so hopefully we'll give them a game. Um, it's kind of, I think, the worry for a lot of fan, Palace fans at the moment after after we lost, uh, what was it, 4-1 to Chelsea in the last fixture is that we're kind of going to go on a similar run to the one that we ended last season with where we I think we lost like seven or eight in a row just because, you know, we were safe and there was nothing left to play for. Um, but, yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens. We've actually got an all right record up there. they they did beat us three 0 last year, but before that, I think we'd won four one and and three 0 in the season before that. So, yeah, you never know. But um, but I think Leicester are the firm favourites for this one. And if Leicester are the firm favourites, I'm guessing Manchester City are the even firmer favourites next week. <laughs> God, yeah, is that who we're playing? Well, okay, <laughs> I knew it. this is how far ahead I look at the moment with our fixtures, just because it's. Uh, I, I knew that we had a tough run, and I think as well as City, we've still got to play. We've still got Arsenal last play, which I know isn't quite the same, doesn't quite carry the same threat as it used to. But um, yeah, we've still got them to play in Liverpool too. So you can kind of see why some Palace fans are fearing a, a similar end to the season. But yeah, City next week, I guess. Um, yeah, it's, you're thinking more of damage limitation than getting a result, aren't you? But I suppose they have they have dropped points um, in the league recently. They have sort of shown uh, that they aren't invincible. Uh, and obviously they've lost to Chelsea in the in the cup semi final and you know they might have... you also play them between the two PSG games. So they'll probably oh, they'll probably rest their teams and they'll only bring in a, a certain player because Sergio Aguero, so I'm sure it will be fine. Yeah, exactly. They'll give him a run out before <laughs> before that. And he always seems to score against us, so I'm sure that'll end nicely. But uh but yeah, same as with the Leicester game, I think the hope is just kind of for a decent performance rather than necessarily a result. Yeah, Newcastle. We've got we've got the uh, the Arsenal that you just mentioned. So uh, after that, after their loss um, against who did they play the other day? It was um, Everton, wasn't it? They lost to Everton on Friday night. So after they've lost there and they drew to Fulham, they definitely seem to be on the beach when it comes to the Premier League. I don't think they're going to qualify for the Europe by the Premier League, um, and they'll probably have all their eggs in the Europa League basket. Um, so like City, we probably. Play Arsenal at a good time between 
those two semi-finals um and yeah the form we're in at the moment and playing at home i think we've been we've played quite well at home pretty much this whole calendar year and we just haven't had the match uh, the results to match i think if you remember remember the palace game i thought we were really good in that game we just <laughs> we just didn't manage to get a goal in the end i think we went one nil up and then palace got two from set pieces and then we just but we had most of the most of the ball even when we played Leeds a week before that we played really well and we played quite well against uh, Wolves and um, Aston Villa as well at home so, and and taking that in the last couple of games we had Tottenham and West Ham we played well again so we've, we've been playing well at home and I think that Arsenal they'll probably be taking things easy and we'll be going into it thinking that we can get a win against the top, a traditional top six team. If we play like we did against West Ham and the way we played against Liverpool yesterday, I think we've got a really good chance. So yeah, I, I think I'm going to predict Newcastle to win that and uh, confirm our safety, which seems crazy. Um, <laughs> to, move, to move above, I think we'd be moved to 39 or 40 points. We're definitely getting up to, up to that sort of mark. So that would be good, good way to uh, make the last few weeks less stressful than I thought they would be a few weeks ago. But with that, we are now out of time we've managed to talk for about an hour sam so that's quite good just the two of us but if you just like to tell people where they can reach you now would be a good time yeah no worries no wonder kev keeps asking us to do it if we can talk for this long but uh yeah uh cheers jake thanks for having me on um i'm sam carp uh palace fan you can find some uh, some of my stuff on the eagle's beak um and if you would like to follow me on twitter i'm at sam double underscore cop yeah, thanks, Sam. And uh, you can get the show at EPL Roundtable. You can get me on Twitter at JakeJackWens. But yeah, thanks again, Sam, for joining me today. And we hope all of you guys join us again next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.